Father, now we pray that your Spirit would work upon your people. We pray that he would take the Word and that he would glorify Jesus here, even Jesus as a boy. Lord, there is so much for us to learn from this passage of Scripture. I pray that you would make it live, that you would cause it to have, bear fruit and increase in godliness and righteousness in your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we, are, we have the privilege of looking at, I think, an extremely interesting text of Scripture. In fact, God's people, for all time, have thought so. It's a very unique passage because in this passage, we get a look at the only window into the life of Jesus from the time he was born to the time he was 30 years old. And of course, there's been a lot of speculation. They, you know, people call this the silent years. What was going on during these years? And that has developed a lot of different writings, apocryphal writings. According to the Gospel of Thomas, when Jesus was a boy, he made these clay pigeons and then he turned them alive. He made them come alive and he threw them up in the air and they started flying away. There's another story where there's this little creek and he, he diverts the waters and gets them to be really calm and he's happy about the calm waters. And a boy comes along with a stick and starts beating the waters and causing his calm waters to be rustled up. And Jesus gets mad at this other boy and he causes him to wither, just like he causes the fig tree to wither later in his ministry. But folks, these are apocryphal writings. These are not the word of God. They, they come across as a, to us as being fanciful, and I think rightly so. I don't think there's any basis in reality for those stories. But there is one story, and only one, that we can look at to see what was going on in the life of Jesus from the time he was presented in the temple at about 40 days old to the time when he turned about 30 years old and was baptized by John the Baptist. Now, as we go through the text today, there's three divisions. Verse 39 and 40 that gives us everything we know about the time of Jesus from 0 to 12 years old. It's two verses. Verses 41 to 50. That gives us everything we know about Jesus when he was 12 years old. And then verses 51 and 52. That's everything we know about Jesus from 12 to 30 years old. So we have 0 to 12. One incident in the life of Jesus when he was 12. And then 12 to 30. And it's all encapsulated here in 14 verses. Luke 2.39 to 52. And it's also really interesting to me that there are two verses here that are very similar to each other. Verse 40 and verse 52. Verse 40 says, The child continued to grow and become strong. They're his, describing his physical development. Increasing in wisdom. That's his mental and intellectual development. And the grace of God was upon him. There's his spiritual development. Now look at verse 52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, his intellectual development and stature, his physical development, and in favor with God and man, his spiritual development. So you have these two verses, one at the very beginning of our section, one at the very end, functioning as bookends, saying practically the same thing. But in between these two bookends, we have this story this incident describing Jesus as he's growing in wisdom, as he's growing in stature, as he's growing in favor with God and man, 
one incident to give us a window into his life to see what was going on in him and through him. And that's the one that we're going to focus on today, that incident. Now, this morning we're going to do things a little bit different. What I want to do is just work through the passage verse by verse and give you an exposition and try to make clear anything that's not apparent to you. That won't take very long. And when we're done with that, I want to go back and start to do some application. And we're going to talk to three different groups this morning. And I'm glad we've got some kids because one of the applications is to kids. <laughs> so we've got married couples, we've got children, and then we've got every Christian. Okay, so let's dig into the passage starting in verse 39. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. Now, what's being spoken of here? What does it mean that they performed everything according to the law of the Lord? Well, go back in your mind just to the previous section that we studied. And remember when they came to, uh, to Jesus was eight days old and they circumcised him and they gave him the name Jesus. Well, according to the law of the Lord, every male born Israelite boy, when he was eight days old, had to be circumcised. So they performed that ritual according to God's law. Another of the laws of the Lord was that when this boy turned 40 days old, or thereabouts, he was to be publicly presented to the Lord. Every male-born Israelite was to be given back to God. And so that's what we find Mary and Joseph doing. They take him up to the temple. They offer the sacrifices that were necessary for that. Do you remember that Simeon comes and gives a prophecy? And then Anna comes up and she starts talking to everybody who's looking for redemption within Jerusalem. That was all taking place as Mary and Joseph were performing the law of the Lord. Then verse 40 says, The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So if we were living at this time, and we were looking at Jesus, I don't think we would have seen anybody that was any more unusual than anybody else. He was like every other boy, in a sense. He was growing. He was developing mentally. He was developing spiritually. Uh, he didn't wear a halo around his head, you know, to mark him off from everybody else. He was just like any other boy his age, in that sense, in his development. It's interesting that here we have the king of the ages, God eternal, become a man. And as God, Jesus is omnipotent, isn't he? All power. But this text tells us that he continued to grow and become strong. Now, God can't grow and become strong, can he? God can't increase in wisdom, but yet Jesus did. And so what we're seeing is the, the man, the human Jesus, is increasing in stature, in wisdom. He's growing strong and developing. Because when Jesus came into the world, what was taking place is that the divine nature was wedded to or joined to, was married to a human nature forever. And there's great mystery here. How can you have one person who has two distinct natures forever? And how do they work together? I don't know. I don't know. But I think what we're seeing here is the human side of Jesus in its development. Just like every other boy needed to develop. Now verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. 
And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan, and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now, when I read this passage, I think, what in the world is going on? How could this possibly happen? Don't you scratch your head and think, how could a mom and a dad walk for 8 to 10 to 12 hours on this journey, and suddenly they get to their destination, they're going to put their tents up for the night, and they look around and say, well, where's Jesus? I don't know. Didn't you, wasn't he with you? No. Wasn't he with you? No, I, I don't know where he's at. How could two responsible, loving, godly, and that's who they were, parents just totally lose track of their son for that length of time? Well, I think the key is the little word caravan in verse 44. When these people went on their trips to, up to the feast, they would go in a caravan, which is more than just a nuclear family. It was an extended family. Sometimes a whole village would travel together. And they would do that because uh, they wanted protection from the marauders or the bandits that were out there that could attack them and take away their possessions. So they would journey in mass. So you would have grandma and grandpas and aunts and uncles and cousins and second cousins and everybody's, you know, you might have 50 to 100 people traveling down this dusty old road towards Jerusalem for the feast. And where do you think the women are going to spend their time as they're traveling? Well, they're probably going to hang out with the other women, is my guess, because they're going to want a fellowship on the way. They're going to want to talk about so-and-so's latest baby, or, you know, or so-and-so is going to be getting married, and the guys are over here talking together, and they're talking shop, probably, or theology, you know, that's what we like to do. <laughs> so the women are probably cloistered together, and they're having a great time as they just journey towards Jerusalem, and here are the men over here, and they're traveling. And Joseph thinks that Jesus is with Mary, and Mary thinks that Jesus is with Joseph, and when they finally get to their campsite, he's not with either one. And so what's going to be running through their mind right about then? How, what are they going to be feeling? Fear. Fear. Franticness. Terror. I mean, have you guys ever lost your child? Have you ever lost a child for more than, say, an hour? Say, a day, or two days, or three days? I mean, you would be out of your mind with fear and anxiety, wouldn't you? And that's, that's our worst nightmare, is that someone might abduct our son, and we don't know where he's at, and we don't know how to get him back. So... So they've gone a full day's journey. This is sort of like, you know, kids, wife, kids, let's get in the car. We're all going to Disneyland. And so we take off on our trip in our car, and we travel seven, eight hours, and we finally arrive at Disneyland, and everyone piles out of the car, and we start counting heads, and we say, well, where's Johnny? Johnny, I, I don't know. Where's Johnny? Do we leave Johnny at home? You know, that's kind of what it was like. And so you get back in your car and you go right back to where you started looking for Johnny. So they turned right around and went back. Verse 45 says, When they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And then after three days, so that would be the first day is the first day's journey, and then they finally discovered he's missing. Second day is their journey all the way back. The third day is their scouring every place in Jerusalem that they can think of to try to find him. And so after three days, they found him, not playing marbles with the boys. He's in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers. That would be the teachers of the law, those who knew the Bible best at that particular time. And what's he doing? 
He's listening to them and asking questions. Listening, asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This was no ordinary child, was he? There was something very unique, very different about this boy. Whereas other boys were interested in hunting or fishing or playing games. If it was today, they'd be interested in video games. This boy is most interested in knowing God and knowing God's word. And so he makes a beeline to the temple because he wants to ask some questions of those who knew the Bible the best at that particular time. Verse 48. When they saw him, they were astonished. Now this is Jesus' parents. When Jesus' parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Now I expect that's about what we would say too, wouldn't we? Son, we have been out of our mind <laughs> with, with fear. Where have you been? It's almost like they took it personally. Why did you do this to us? Didn't you know that this was going to drive us crazy with fear? And it's interesting, Jesus' response. So these are the very, these are the only, and well, I should say it this way. This is the earliest recorded words of Jesus Christ. We don't have any other words that have ever been recorded except for these in verse 49 up until he's 30 years old. And this is what he says. Why is it that you were looking for me? It's almost like he's surprised that they would be looking for him. He's clueless. Why are you so anxious? <laughs> Why are you looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? I mean, where else would you look? Isn't that the first place to go? If I'm not around, that's where I'm going to be. But they did not understand the statement which he made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, it's also interesting in verse 48 and 49. Notice what Mary says. <coughs> Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? The difference between your father and my father. Mary's pointing to Joseph as the father. Jesus is pointing to God as the father. And we see that Jesus had a self-awareness, even at this early age of 12, that he, was, he had a unique relationship to God, that he was the divine son, that God was related to him differently than to any other person on the planet. Amen. He was unique. He was different. So there's our text. Verse 52 talks about how Mary treasured up these words in her heart. Have you ever wondered why did Luke record that? What was significant about the fact that Mary was treasuring up these words in her heart? It's the second time that we've had that told us in Luke's Gospel. In Luke 2.19, when the shepherds came and they rec recounted the angelic visitation and what the angels had told them, they told that to Mary and Joseph and it says, and Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. 
I believe why Luke is telling us that is because he wants us to know that when he interviewed Mary and found out the details of this story and wrote it down, he got the facts right. Mary hadn't forgotten. Mary couldn't forget these things. They were indelibly etched on her memory banks. She kept thinking about them and, store, and she stored them up and then she pondered them over and over and over thinking about what these things might be so that when Luke came back years later and interviewed her and found out the, the details, she told them and she hadn't forgotten and these, these details were preserved for us. Now let's get down to some application. I want to talk to married couples first. How many are married here? Okay, several of us. The exhortation I want to give you this morning, if you're a married person, is I want you to consider this, to serve the Lord together with your spouse. And the reason I'm going to go in that direction is because I want you to look at Mary and Joseph as an example. Now later we're going to look at Jesus as an example. But let's look at Mary and Joseph for just a minute. They are a good example. They're a godly example of a married couple. Look at verse 39. It says, When they, both of them, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. So Mary and Joseph had gone up together they had had Jesus circumcised together. Later, they had brought him back to the temple and they had presented him publicly to the Lord and offered the sacrifices together. That tells us that they were a devout couple. That they were concerned about keeping God's law. They were God-fearing. There was reverence in their hearts towards the Lord. They were strict when it came to God's law. They weren't going to let the law pass at all. Then look at verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. What did the law prescribe about going up to the feasts? Who did the law say must go up three times a year? The men. Deuteronomy 16, 16. The law said the men had to go up three times a year. Feast of Passover, Feast of First Fruits, and Feast of Booths. Three different feasts. Here we find Mary going up with him. Now she didn't have to. And she's got at least one son by this time. She's got Jesus. And very likely she has other children. This couldn't have been an easy trip to make. Remember, it's about 80 miles or so. That's three to four days travel, more than likely. And the feast was another eight days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So to go up to this feast, you're going to have to take off, oh, two, two and a half weeks for this event. But Mary accompanied her husband to this feast because she was serving the Lord together with him. It was important to her to be with her husband to worship God and to observe this holy public worship time. And then look at verse 43. As they were returning after spending the full number of days. You see, there are some people who didn't spend the full number of days at Passover. They didn't want to take off two or two and a half weeks from work. They felt they couldn't afford it. So yeah, they would journey to Jerusalem, but they would get there the evening of the day before the Passover. They'd stand, spend the night. They would observe the Passover on Passover day, and the day following they would journey on home. So they would spend parts of two or three days, but they had made their appearance. They'd gone up to Jerusalem. They'd participated in the feast, they thought, but Mary and Joseph didn't do that. They spent the full number of days there. They spent eight solid days in Jerusalem worshiping and being with God's people and rejoicing in His presence. 
They did it together. And that's the only thing I wanted to impress upon your mind is that this couple served God together. They weren't off in two totally different directions. Sometimes married people, the husband goes to one church and the wife goes to another. That's, that's really a bad decision. If there is any way at all possible that you can find a church you both agree on, go to the same church. Because you're going to have opportunities to serve God there. And you'll have opportunities to serve God together there. So, be involved in church together. And I would encourage you married folks to, to pray with your husband or your wife. Do you pray with your spouse? It's a great thing to do. Uh, Debbie and I were doing that really consistently for a while, and then sort of it just stopped. I don't know how, it just stopped. And then recently we've been convicted. You know, we haven't been praying together, so we've started that up again. And I'm blessed every time we do. We just start our day, and it's not a long time. It's about five minutes probably. But we just commit our day to the Lord and the things that... We know we'll be doing that day, and we pray for each other and various needs. But we can serve God together in prayer. What about you folks that are married? Do you ever read Scripture with your spouse and discuss it? Just the two of you. You know, it's great to do it as a family, but do you ever find time, or make time, I should say, just to read the Scripture and talk about it together? It's wonderful. Uh, we have a date night once a week, and that's what we like to do. We like to go to the Nugget, and I like to get a chai freeze. And Debbie gets all kinds of things. And we go to that little area on top, you know, where they got all the chairs. And we do a little Bible study together. And we just, oh gosh, it's fun. We've gone through um, Nehemiah and Ezra and Esther and um, <clears throat> Ruth was the last one. A bunch of Old Testament books and just discussing them together. And so, sometimes we have our best talks just from opening up the Bible. And it'll lead from one thing to the next. And Debbie will have some insights that I don't have. And I'll be able to share something that she hasn't thought of, and it's very edifying. So I would encourage you, look for ways that you can read and discuss Scripture together. And look for, for ways that you can actually serve God together. Perhaps you're going to come across somebody who's troubled and hurting and suffering that you can invite into your home to counsel, to, to give godly advice to, to pray for. I was just listening to a message by Wayne Grudem the other day, and I thought it was, it was so delightful. He was saying, you know, the most exciting thing in my life is for my wife and I to have people over to our house so that we can pray for them. That was the most exciting thing that he ever does. The reason is, is because he sees God answer prayer. Sometimes dramatically. Sometimes many people have been healed through them laying on of hands and praying for them, and they'll, they'll improve dramatically or they'll get all the way better. And so he just loves to have people over to, just to pray for them. So these kinds of oppor uh, ministry opportunities can open up where the two of you can share in that together. So it's a great thing. I really think that God has given us, our spouses, not because he wants that spouse to meet all of our needs, but because he wants us to help them on their way to heaven. And he wants them to help us on our way to heaven. We, we are to be influencers for godliness. Have you ever thought about your role when it comes to your wife or your husband? God wants to use me to help this man or this woman persevere, to help them grow in godliness. What can I do to be a help to them on their spiritual life and their spiritual journey? What is it that I can do to encourage them? Either we're helping our spouse on the way to heaven or we are influencing them on the way to hell. It's only one of those two things. 
And I want to encourage the men that are husbands here today to begin to take the initiative in this. God has called us to be the heads of our families. That means that the buck stops with us. We have to take responsibility. Think about your wife as a garden. Is she a flourishing garden? Is she producing all kinds of beautiful flowers and fruit? And is she lush and green and verdant? Or is she wilting and fading? <laughs> and if she's wilting and fading, maybe it's because we haven't been doing our job. Maybe it's because we haven't taken the initiative to say, honey, let's pray together before I go off to work. Or let's have a date night. Let's make a commitment to do that every week. And let's read something from the Word whenever we go out. It, it, maybe it's because we haven't been watering that garden and weeding that garden. Maybe it could be lusher than it is, and we have to bear some of the responsibility. So I just want to encourage you in that way. Be, the, the scripture says in Ephesians 5, uh, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And he did this to sanctify her. So Jesus loved the church. And the way he loved the church is by self-sacrificial love for the purpose of sanctifying her. So do we have that as one of the goals in our relationship with our wife? We want to be an instrument through which God can bring sanctification. And of course, she wants to be an instrument through which we can be sanctified. When I first got married, I, I, Debbie and I both said the same thing to each other. We said, this is the hardest thing we've ever done. <laughs> this isn't easy. This is hard to have a relationship. And the fact is that we're very, very different and we think very, very differently. Mom can attest to this because she lives with us. <laughs> she hears our conversations, and I don't get what Debbie's trying to tell me, and she doesn't get what I'm trying to tell her. Boy, we have to work hard at our relationship. But this is one of the ways that God can meld us and bring us together and cause fruit to come out. So I, I challenge you who are married, give attention to serving the Lord together with your spouse. For your wife, that might mean giving her money to go off on a ladies' retreat. Give her money for books, spiritual books that will nourish her and feed her soul. Be willing to do, to encourage her in whatever thing the Lord has called her to. So married couples, serve the Lord together. Kids, this is your time to quit drawing and look at the pastor because I got to talk to you and all of you folks in the back. Kids, number one, I want to encourage you to seek the truth. Now where do I get that from this text? From the example of Jesus. Have you ever thought of Jesus as your example? Now, Jesus is our atoning sacrifice, praise God, but he's also our example. In 1 Peter 2.21, it says, You have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. We are to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. So, what is the example of Jesus Christ when he was 12 years old? Okay, his mom and dad go back to Jerusalem. They scour the city. They're looking for him. When they find him, he's not playing marbles with his buddies. He's not getting into mischief with some bad kids. He's not doing all the other things that normal 12-year-olds would do. Jesus is seeking after the truth as a 12-year-old. He's hungry to know God's word, isn't he? There's, there's an interest in him, a, a zeal within him to know God and to know the truth of the Word of God. And I want to encourage the children here today to ask God to give you that kind of a heart for the truth, to seek the truth, to seek it. Kids, when you come to church, do you tend to zone out and space out when the pastor's preaching? 
if you do, I want to encourage you to stop doing that and to concentrate. Have it as your goal that you want to learn something from the Bible. Something about God that you didn't know before. You want to get a little bit closer to God by being in this worship service. So instead of spacing out, let's tune in. And let's ask the Lord to enable us to grow. Jesus loved the truth. He sought the truth. He was interested in the truth. And I think that's the example that he has for all of us. And so children, if you are old enough to do wrong, you're also old enough to do right. If you are able to read storybooks and speak, you also can read the Bible and pray. Can't you? And let me just speak very personally to the kids today about this. All of us, including you, are accountable to God. We're all going to stand before God one day. We're all going to be judged. You as well as I. And the Bible says that God is commanding all people everywhere to repent. That includes children, that includes adults, that includes everyone. That's all people. God commands. He's not asking or suggesting. He's commanding all people everywhere to repent because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. So, you're not too young to repent. And you're not too young to believe the gospel. And so come to Jesus. And when you come to church, come to learn from Jesus and to grow in Jesus and to hear His Word and determine by His grace that you're going to learn something when you come. So the first thing for kids is that the Lord would have you to seek the truth. Secondly, there's two lessons here for the kids. The second one is that He would have you to submit to your parents. Look at um, verse 51. It says that he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. Jesus continued in subjection to his parents. Now, that's interesting. Because if there was any, ever anybody who wouldn't have to submit to his parents, it would be Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus made his parents. <laughs> Jesus is the only child who is ever older than his parents. Jesus has existed forever. Jesus, who is older than his parents, submitted to his parents. And so children, follow the example of Christ. He obeyed his mom and his dad. There is a verse of scripture that, should, that you should know very well because it speaks to you specifically. Ephesians 6.1 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obey your parents. This is right. Do it in the Lord. Do it out of a love for the Lord. Do it out of a relationship to the Lord. Do it out of reverence for the Lord, but obey them. And you know that simply the act of obedience is not all that God requires and all that He wants. The Lord wants the action, but He wants you to obey immediately, and He wants you to obey cheerfully. And you can do the action with a bad attitude and still be displeasing in the sight of God. Your mom and your dad say, I want you to go clean up your room. And you do it, but you're moping around and you're, you know, grumbling under your breath. Why do I got to do this? I don't think I should have to do this. That's not really obedience. That's outward obedience, but it's not heart obedience. And the Lord wants the heart. And you can say, okay, I'll do that, Mom. 
30 minutes later, it's not done. An hour later, oh, you start to get around to it. That's not obedience either. Obedience is immediate, and it's cheerful and joyful. And Jesus sets the example, doesn't he? Someone who didn't have to obey, but he did. He subjected himself to his parents. Now let me speak thirdly. We've gone from the couples to the kids. Now we're going to go to every Christian here. Every Christian here. Verse 49. Jesus said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? I had to be in my father's house. So the exhortation for all Christians is to sanctify yourself to do the will of God. Because that's what we see Jesus Christ doing here in the temple. Now, there is a question about what the correct translation of this verse should be. If you have a New American Standard, you'll notice that the word house is in italics. That's one of the reasons I like the NASB. Because they'll tell you when they supply a word. Whereas other versions won't do that. The word house is not in the original. And I, I took a look at the Greek text this week, and it's true. Literally, it says, Did you not know that I had to be in my father's? Okay, my father's what? <laughs> we, the translators had to supply that, or else that verse would make no sense. And there's two different directions you can go. You can go like the NASB does, and the ESV, and several of the newer translations, and they supply the word house. Makes sense, because Jesus was in the temple. But you can also go in a different direction and say, didn't you know I had to be in my father's business, or concerns, or affairs, or things? The things that are of interest to him. Didn't you know I had to be about doing that? Now, even if house is the correct translation, it amounts to the same thing. Because Jesus was in his father's house because he was concerned to be about the father's business and affairs. So I'm going to take this verse today, and I'm going to supply the word business. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's business? His concerns? What's uppermost on his mind and his heart? Notice the little word, had to. I had to be. It's the Greek word, dei, D-E-I, if you were to transliterate it. It means of necessity. I, there was this necessity that I had to do this. It wasn't optional for me. This is something that I, of necessity, I had to give myself to. And I want you to look at Jesus Christ as your example in this regard this morning. Do you have that inner sense of compulsion that you have to be doing your father's business? I think that would be the will of God for us. You know, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father. Now think about that. Not everyone who says is going to enter, well, who's going to enter then? The one who does. Talking is not that important. Doing is. And what are we supposed to be doing as evidence that we're saved people? The will of my Father, he said. The will of God. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, I'm a Christian. Jesus, you're my Lord. Well, that doesn't amount to anything on Judgment Day if he wasn't your Lord. You'll prove that he's your Lord by doing his will doing the Father's will. And Jesus is modeling for His parents and for us that He had this inner compulsion, this necessity that He must be doing God's will. 
And likewise, you and I should have on our heart, I've got to be doing God's will. I've got to. That's what I was made for. That's what I was saved for. Life isn't worth living if I'm not doing the will of God. Jesus said in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. He said, that's my food. Now they went off to get literal food and they came back and they said, have you eaten? You haven't eaten, have you? Well, I don't need to eat because I've just been eating a spiritual lunch <laughs> because I've been doing the will of my father. He had been sharing the gospel. He'd been witnessing, you might say, to this Samaritan woman. He'd been seeking the salvation of her soul. He'd been doing the will of his father. Later in John 17, 4, Jesus says, I glorified you in prayer. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. It's my prayer that I would be able to say that when I'm going to die. Jesus, it's 24 hours from his death, and he says, I've accomplished it all. I did it. Will you and I be able to say, I, I did the work that God gave me to do. I did the will of my Father while I was on the earth. If we waste away our lives frivolously on entertainment and television watching and games, and if we waste our lives like that, we're, we're going to have something to give an account for on Judgment Day. Folks, we're stewards, aren't we? And a steward is a manager of someone else's possessions. Did you know your time is God's possession? God owns you. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. We can't simply decide what to do with our time. As though, I, I think I'll do this today. With no regard for God or His will. You see, a servant does the master's bidding and he uses his time to do the master's will. And I don't know how many Christians really get that. We have to get that. Our lives are not our own. We do God's will with our lives. So when it's 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, we assemble with the saints. If there's a team going out evangelizing, and we believe it's the will of God for us to go, we go. We give up our time and we do it. We, we spend our 168 hours in a week on a way that we believe would be pleasing to God. So I'm encouraging you, I'm exhorting you this morning to sanctify yourself to do the will of God. And the wonderful thing about that is that you can do the will of God at all times, 24 hours a day. When you're eating, you can be doing the will of God because you can be eating in moderation, you can be giving God thanks and praise for the food you're eating and glorifying Him. When you're fasting, you can be doing the will of God because now you're focusing your, your energies more and more upon Him in prayer. When you're working, you can be doing the will of God because you can be seeking to have an influence on that coworker or that client or that customer that you're serving. You can be doing your transactions with honesty and integrity. In everything you do, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, I believe it's 31 or 33, I don't know, 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever it is, he says, do it all to the glory of God. So whether you're playing with your kids, do it to the glory of God. When you take your wife out on a date night, do it to the glory of God. When you go on a vacation, do that to the glory of God. When you set your hand to work, work for the glory of God. Labor for the glory of God. Take your life, your days, string them out and say, tell yourself, put this on your computer monitor. <laughs> I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. I must glorify God in my body. And make that your habit to seek to do that each day.
This is what we find in the life of Jesus. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's business? Now, folks, you and I are going to do that imperfectly. It's good to look at the life of Jesus as an example, but we can become very discouraged if we do that too long because we see a perfect example and we see an imperfect life. We try and we fail, don't we? And so I want to leave you by showing you Jesus not just as your example, but as your Redeemer. You see, Jesus, when he was 12, went up to the feast of what? Passover. And the Passover feast was the time when God redeemed or set free the Jewish people from bondage. Jesus is our Redeemer, isn't he? Jesus has set us free from bondage. Now, the meaning of redemption is to set someone free by paying a price. There's a preacher many years ago by the name of Dr. A.J. Gordon. And this preacher came out from the church building one day and he saw this little boy walking down the road. He had this rusty cage with some birds in it. And he says, son, where'd you get those birds? He said, oh, they're out in the field. I just caught them and put them in the cage. I'm taking them home. He says, well, what are you going to do with these birds? Well, I'll probably play with them for a while and then I'll feed them to my cat. Dr. Gordon says, well, how much would you take for those birds in that cage? How about two bucks? Would you take two bucks? He says, oh, sure, mister. I'd love to take, those, take two bucks for those birds. But you're getting the worst end of this bargain. They don't sing well. They're just old field birds. But sure, if you want to sell them for two bucks. So he took the two bucks and walked down the road whistling singing a happy song, and Dr. Gordon took that cage of birds out behind the church building. He opened up the doors and let the birds fly away. And then he took the rusty cage into the pulpit the next Sunday, and he says, I want to show you what redemption is. Those birds were in bondage. Those birds were doomed to destruction. But yet I paid a price to set them free. And that's exactly what Christ has done for us. He paid the price of his blood, his life. And through shedding his blood, laying down his life, he set us free who were doomed to destruction. And so no one here should go away feeling condemned because you haven't lived up to the example of Christ. You should be stirred to emulate him, but insofar that you don't make that example, you've got a redeemer whose blood covers you from all your sin, all your imperfections, all your failures. So look to him today. Let's pray. Father, I would ask this morning that you would touch lives, touch married couples, children, all of us who know you. I pray that you would cause the truth that we've seen today from the life of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that those truths would become ours. As couples, Lord, help us empower us to minister to our spouses, to serve you together with them. Lord, I pray for the children, that they would be seekers after truth. I pray that they would submit themselves and obey their parents cheerfully and immediately, give them the strength and help they need, Lord, to be obedient. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would surrender ourselves and sanctify our lives to doing your will surrendering and consecrating this body to you because we know it's not ours. We've been bought with the price of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, do this work in us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.